Thank you all. Well, good evening. It is a uh, pleasure to be with you all. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Uh, I think Christendom is a very special institution in Virginia, obviously, as a Catholic politician in particular, um, and one who went to Jesuit high school. It's nice to know there are Catholic institutions out there. Um, a Christendom has a noble mission to educate Catholic students, and even students of other faiths, uh, in their faith, in our faith, as well as to give them a Catholic perspective on the world. And I want to talk to you about a couple of aspects of that today. And I would first say that that role is, in my view, critically important at this point in our history, especially after 40 or 50 years of what amounts to abysmal catechesis among faithful Catholics. Uh, it's not enough just to be a faithful Catholic and learn all the tenets and precepts of our faith. We have to be actively Catholic, engaging and leading in the world around us. Cardinal Dolan has been much in the news lately for a subject I'll come back to periodically, and that is the HHS mandate on Catholic institutions that are not specifically churches, and he gave a very good explanation, a nice simple explanation of why Catholics engage in the health care, in social services of all kinds, in education, and without getting into the legal distinctions that are relevant, he said we're not here to take care of them, to educate them, etc., because they're Catholic. We're doing it because we're Catholic. That is a form, that's an expression of institutional leadership, meaning leadership by the Catholic Church in total in America, engaging the society that we are in in a meaningful way that matters in people's lives, and whether or not you screen at the door for Catholics at Bon Secours Hospital in Virginia, or not, and they do not, the people who leave know they have left a Catholic hospital. It is part of how we are salt and light in the world. No other people who are Christian have engaged the world so completely as Catholics have. That doesn't mean we've always done it right. Doesn't mean we're doing it right now everywhere. But to help us do this, our Catholic institutions must raise up leaders, not just doers. It's important to have people who are willing to go undertake each of these roles in society but it also requires leadership. Leadership to actively engage and lead on all fronts in the culture to change it for the good. The good as God would see it. I'm going to talk about three of these fronts today. Science, the media, oh, a personal favorite of mine, 
And finally, politics. There are many others. There are many others. There are many institutions in our society. And the battle for truth goes on in every single one of them. Every single one of them. But let's start on the scientific front. The world of science is changing very rapidly, maybe more rapidly than it ever has before. New technologies are being developed that have the power to dramatically change the entire human experience, both for the better and for the worse. Oftentimes, science charges ahead without bothering to distinguish between the two. In fact, large swaths of the scientific community actually attack people who try to distinguish between the two. Sometimes the moral and ethical implications of new technologies have not been entirely fleshed out as science proceeds forward as quickly as it can. Oftentimes it takes people of character to step back and think through those implications on society. Uh, while others just jump in with reckless abandon, which is, I would submit, more common in most scientific fields, only realizing the downside after it's too late to put the genie back in the bottle. This is not to suggest that we as Catholics would oppose scientific advancement. But morality, or immorality, or amorality exists in every field of human undertaking, every single one. And it is important not to get to the end of a path and then turn around and look and say, was this good for mankind or was it bad? You should do it on the front end or as you go at least. Additionally, there are some people in the world of science who believe that they're their own gods manipulating and destroying life as they do their research, and often, of course, for financial profit. Now, I should note, I am not against profit. I'm a big fan of profit. I kind of gave it up to be a government lawyer, but <clears throat> be that as it may. It is uh, an element of capitalism that is the greatest form of economic structure that's ever been devised by man. And profit itself is not a bad thing. But when the trade-off is money or life or some other form of moral implication, we need to be very cautious. Cautious to the point of a presumption against proceeding if moral questions arise and the trade-off is profit. Now, while there are many Catholics who are scientists, I wonder, do they routinely follow the principles of their faith in their work? And that's a question they know, or they know the answer to, and God knows the answer to. But each of us have a responsibility to ask ourselves in our own professions those types of questions. For the next generation of practicing Catholics who get into the sciences, they have to understand, and I'm talking, I hope, to some, they have to understand the imperative of applying their faith and following ethical, scientific, and medical practices, and through their example, leading others to do the same. 
It doesn't mean you try to impose necessarily on others, except perhaps when life is at issue. Um, but realize there is a battle for the institutions that even decide these standards. And we need to be engaged in those contests too. We need to be engaged in those as well. We, um, we also have to ensure that science is not a political science. I run into this all the time in some of my undertakings. Um, I, among the legal undertakings I've done over the years, I am a patent lawyer, which was used against me, or so they thought, in my campaign for attorney general. He's a patent lawyer. You're not going to be a patent lawyer, the attorney general, are you? Well, apparently they are. And uh, I recall being in a courtroom in, in Jacksonville, Florida, and in patent cases, they're typically complicated technology. And so one of the things we will do in those cases is we will start with a hearing where we do nothing but teach the judge the technology. And I still remember this judge. His name escapes me, but I remember what he said. He said, now remember, counsel, the only science I've had is political, <clears throat> which doesn't get you very far in anything we're doing in patent law. But an awful lot of scientists today take global warming or allege global warming. There are scientists, enormous numbers of them, who start with a presumption and a conclusion, and they drive everything they do in that direction. If science is supposed to be a search for truth, that is backwards. Well, in fact, it isn't backwards. It isn't science. It might be political science, but it isn't actual science. In this kind of political, politicized science, the research dollars and worldview determine the outcome of the research. Funny how the correlation works there. But rather, we have to ensure that science is hard science, where hypotheses are tested, where the work is shared openly and rigorously reviewed by others in a search for the truth, the truth about the world around us. Uh, George Washington was once asked by a soldier in the Continental Army, uh, are we do you think God is on our side? And George Washington responded, it isn't that God should be on our side, but that we should be on his. Uh, God is synonymous with truth in this discussion. He has put it there for us to discover it or reason it. But denying it happens all the time in our society, including in the scientific community. Now, our universities must prepare scientists who will not leave human ethics behind. That requires preparing Catholic students for three things. One, to know and love and nurture their Catholic faith. That's the foundation. That is the foundation. Two, to achieve excellence in their chosen field of science. And three, to have the moral courage and the perseverance to stand for the principles of our faith within that field. And I would submit to you that of the three, that is the hardest and has proven to be the rarest. But it is 
critically necessary if we're going to change that portion of our world, those institutions. And while it's easy to say these three things, it is hard to do them, especially all three together. And it's hard for both the universities and the students. My charge here is to both. Uh, it isn't just to the students. It's even those of us who ate a little better. So, well, drank a little better. Uh, the media. So much to say here, but I'll try to keep it a little uh, uh, basic because I could get carried away, I suppose. Um, the media is a very powerful communication tool, and I'm thinking of media very broadly, not just newspapers or networks. It's Facebook. It's uh, everything in between. Um, all the different forms of communication and all the tools we have now to communicate quickly and efficiently, maybe no more accurately, but quickly and with many, many people. But with so much information, uh, overload happens all the time, and that information overload in our society, the voice of the Catholic Church, especially in America, where I think this is the most intense, can barely be heard above the din, can be heard above all the noise of the internet, television, music, movies, you can keep describing them as you will, and I think that's especially true among young people. If we as a Catholic laity have knowledge and skills to use in, within these media for good, we have the potential to change the world, and not just one person at a time, but enormous numbers at a time, enormous numbers, which is one of the interesting aspects of the media. We have to utilize these modes of communication to, com to meet the culture where it is, to find people who use Facebook and nothing else to get their news and information, or newspapers. And there are people who run the gamut to this day. And to use these media to go out into the world to turn hearts and minds toward truth and the beauty of that truth, and thus toward God himself. One other problem we've experienced with this explosion of media in our society and all these different means of communication is that with so many ways to communicate, face-to-face -face communication seems to lose some of its um, necessity, uh, if nothing else. We find that in some ways people are actually more cut off and more isolated despite having more and more tools with which to reach more and more people to communicate with more openly. So often human interaction is declining, and as such, we see it's easy for incivility to creep into our discussion and our communication uh, with one another. Just look at how easy it is to criticize over email, to bully over Facebook, an issue I deal with quite a bit, or through text messaging and all the rest, to use this simple example of bullying. Um, which, as Attorney General, I deal with um, with some frequency. When I was in school, well, elementary school, I went to a lot of schools, um, bullying was pretty simple, and it was very personal. <laughs> <clears throat> 
It was interactive. in a a variety of ways, but interactive nonetheless. Today, with younger and younger kids with cell phones, internet access, uh, a a truly intent bully can pursue you 24 hours a day. And that has all sorts of implications for families, for individuals, and for our society, and some of the institutions in it. And that's just bullying. It isn't even regular old talking. One of the, how how many people have not gotten an email, responded quickly, hit send, and thought, you know, I probably shouldn't have hit send quite so quickly. I've done that. I don't even know how many times I've done that. Nonetheless, it's a changed form of communication, and we need to be prepared, think through how we use these means of communication to communicate truth, to convince people of it, and to move on beyond one person at a time as these media allow us to many people at one time. So again, as this human interaction declines, even with all these new forms of communication, we do see a rise in incivility. I think that is part of what people perceive as to be the cause of a rise of uncivil behavior or discussion. And we need, to bring our, we need to bring our communities together as real communities. We need to think about what it means to be part of that community and remind us all that we're part of one family and that we need to love each other as Christ taught us to, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this needs to find its way into how we use and communicate through media. Um, I will say, sometimes I struggle with that in communicating with media. Uh, As people in that industry can be decidedly uh, antagonistic, first of all, just to absolute truth, to the fact that there could be absolute truth. I remember, and I cited often for a number of propositions, in 2008, when then-Senator Obama was running for president, um, I remember hearing a radio interview, or part of it, that he gave in Chicago. It was in 2001 or 2004 time frame. And I don't know why the question was asked, but he was asked, what do you think sin is? And he said, well, doing something you think is wrong. Think about that. I think he has a similar view of the Constitution. (laughs) Uh, Literally. But um, uh, that suggests suggests, uh, an uh, an absolute abandonment of absolute truth. And as George Washington said with respect to God, it is not that truth be on our side, but that we be on the side of truth. And that is a confusing concept in the maelstrom of the modern media. And the faithful foundation is critical to not being swept up in it. Uh, I'll give you a a much simpler, blander example. Uh, I talked to a journalism professor from uh, southern Virginia, southwestern Virginia, who repeatedly has students come into his class and in the first class, they talk, well, you know, why do you 
are you interested in journalism? And the ones who say yes, well, why? Well, I, I, want, to, uh, I want to change the world. Well, what are you doing in journalism class? You're supposed to report on the world. But that's not how they see it. That's a platform for them to bombard you with their messages. And if you aren't prepared to critically analyze what's there, eventually that kind of wears on you. And you, human nature is what it is. We tend to accept as credible things we see written. And the more prominent the place it's written, the more readily the credibility is accepted. Whether that makes sense or not, and I would suggest it doesn't necessarily, especially in this day and age, um, but where Catholics can use these media, not as a majority, certainly not now or in the near future, for good is to spread God's message that it is one of love in a world that's becoming more detached and in many respects more lonely on a person-by-person basis. Media has an upside. Um, it does have an upside. Finally, on the front I know the best, the political front, spend a little more time here, I can tell you from first-hand experience that the Catholic community is not adequately involved in the political process. And I'm going to talk through this and come back to the major example of the day, which is our own bishops. It's not enough to just know the issues and vote right, though many people don't do that. Many people don't even do that. The world is changed by those who actively engage. Your willing but passive participation is unlikely to force much change. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Who is thy? God's will be done. A lot of Americans say my will be done and Hopefully God will let me in heaven. And it is our will, not his will. But that's not what Jesus left us with. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, who's going to do that? Who is going to do that? You are. You are. Or it won't be done or it will not be done. And doesn't this also mean that our institutions, like Christendom, ought to be pushing their students into these arenas now, right now? I think it does. I think it does. If we as faithful Catholics don't engage in the political process, then we fail in our duty to secure a free future for the future generations of this nation. You all, as I have, have been given a great gift. America is not normal around the world. It is and always has been exceptional and special and blessed. Well, blessings don't roll on forever if the recipients of those blessings reject them.
And there is much in America today that rejects those blessings. And it is up to us to turn this country back toward God. That doesn't mean that every political act that you undertake or that I undertake is you're flipping through the Bible and finding the verse, which one applies to this? I heard to Bill Bennett, who used to be Secretary of Education and the drug czar and a number of other things, um, he was asked one day about what it's like to be Catholic. And he said, well, I mean, that's like asking me what it's like to be male. It's just part of who I am, which I actually thought was a pretty darn good answer. You don't have to process every little decision and pull out your catechism. You need to internalize the principles and the precepts of that catechism so they're reflected in your personal decisions. That's not just true of politics. It's true of business. It's true of science. There's nowhere it isn't true. <clears throat> and the freedom that I speak of includes freedom for faith, but it isn't exclusive for faith. We've seen the governmental assault on religious liberty escalating in recent years, but this year with the, what I call son of mandate, but uh, the HHS mandate on religious institutions, particularly Catholic institutions. Now, mind you, in January, within days before that mandate was issued by Catholic Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius, the Supreme Court had decided 9-0 in a Lutheran church case called Tabor, Mount Tabor, that the federal government's attempt to find discrimination in how a particular Lutheran church chose or rejected its ministers was absurd. Justice Kagan, a presidential, an appointee of this president, a nominee of this president, called the federal government's argument amazing in its ludicrousness. That's his own appointee speaking of his own EEOC, the Employment, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Amazing. The federal government had argued that the First Amendment has no application to a discrimination case involving the ministers of a faith. Really? The Supreme Court said, no, not really. 9-0. So we weren't first on this hit list, but realize, and there's a poem out there, first they came for, you all know the one I'm talking about, I'm sure, from World War II, they came for the Lutherans before they came for the Catholics. And we're not alone in this mandate contest. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it is an incredible assault on religious liberty. I want you to know it isn't the first assault on religious liberty of this administration. And 
it doesn't just happen on its own in a vacuum. It happens with the suffocating of all liberty. It is all inextricably linked. We can talk about various forms of liberty, but it is all boiled down to one, to liberty. Religious liberty just tends to be the one, and historically this has been true, that is most valued. It is freedom of conscience. conscience. It's most valued, but it is not inextricably linked to any other way you might describe other aspects of liberty. Governments don't just squash one liberty. If you're restricting religious liberty, what else are you restricting? Well, let's say you want to be narrow about it. You have to restrict speech. You have to impose speech codes, or at least favor or condemn those who say or don't say favorable or unfavorable things. They all go together, and that web keeps expanding. It keeps expanding. The person who's actually speaking most frequently about this in the public arena today is Ron Paul. Is he recognizes better than, or I should say he has recognized longer than most others in the political arena, the relationship that all of these have one to the other. Dr. O'Donnell mentioned my description of the health care case, the federal health care case that was heard before the Supreme Court last week. It is not a case about Healthcare. The legislation is about health care. The litigation is about liberty. Because if they can make you buy this product, they can make you buy a car or asparagus or a gym membership, to use the examples the judge used in Virginia's case in district court. And I have a theory about this. I think they're going to make you buy a GM car. They have a little bit of interest in GM these days. And I think they're going to make you buy a Chevy Equinox. I own a Chevy Equinox. You don't want to own a Chevy Equinox. And that's exactly why that's the one they're going to make you buy. If you want to buy it, government doesn't have to mandate that you do it. You'll just go do it anyway. The notion of a mandate is an automatic repression of your freedom. Uh, years ago, when Ronald Reagan used to talk about economic policy, he talked about the economic pie. And you can grow the pie and shrink the pie. Good policies that keep government out of the way of private individuals in the private sector grow the economic pie because we can actually create wealth. We can create more wealth. It can grow. It can also shrink, as we've seen for a few years now. I talk to people about the liberty pie. It doesn't grow, and it doesn't shrink. And there are two slices in that pie, government power and your freedom, liberty. And every single thing that government does 
to expand its power comes directly at the expense of your liberty. Everything. And there are three ways government affects the balance of power. More spending, more taxes, and they don't always go together, even if they should, and more regulation. And the health care bill is a form of regulation. I don't just mean agencies. I mean dictating to businesses or individuals what they can and cannot do. Once they have told you what they, you can do, they have thus told you what you can't, and your freedom is reduced. When your taxes go up, you have less money in your pocket, you have less choices in your life, your freedom is reduced. And even when they increase spending, this is my favorite Republican one under good President George Bush and a Republican Senate and a Republican House, they increased regulation and spending as no one had seen before till this administration. Nonetheless, they increase spending like crazy. Well, what happens? Well, how does that reduce my freedom? Government spending, they decide how that money is going to be spent, and it crowds you out. It crowds out private choice, private opportunity, liberty. All three of those, for 10 years, well, ta you know, the Republicans, my colleagues, uh, they cut taxes, but they increased everything else, which doesn't strike me as terribly responsible. It only looks responsible relative to what we're seeing now, graded on a serious curve. Um, so it is not a partisan problem. It is a bipartisan problem, and it has been for some time. The reduction of liberty, and we'll just take the health care bill, will continue. It is necessary. for the effectuation of the policies in that health care bill. Assume the Supreme Court upholds it. This additional mandate is only the beginning. It is only the beginning. There will be more denials of your choice and options of how you live your life and how you die. Because your liberty has been taken from you in that piece of legislation. And government does it all over the place. It's connected everywhere. This is the mistake our bishops have made for 50 plus years. The Conference of Catholic Bishops has been lobbying governments everywhere, including the federal government, to do more and to do more and to do more. And they never understood that there was always a cost until the cost was higher than they were willing to pay. It's the first one they ever noticed. But everything they asked government to do came at the cost of a little bit more liberty. It's all government ever asked, just a little bit more of your freedom, your liberty. And they've been dragging it in. Now another problem for us as Catholics is that has reduced the Catholic Church in the political arena to nothing more than another special interest group. 
And that's sad. It's really pathetic. That's what it is. We need to stand apart and we need to carry on the work that we've been doing in the world since Christ himself called us to do it without government, in parallel to, not in opposition to, but parallel to government. And when we get back to that point as a church, we will regain our moral authority within the society. But right now, for much of the rest of American society, when it comes to the discussion in government, we're just another special interest group. And as I said, that is sad and it's pathetic. And it is unworthy of the church that Christ established. It is unworthy of it. Part of the engagement that we have to have is simple to engage our friends, our family, educate them, our students about the gift of freedom. Freedom is just what we tend to call liberty today. It sounds more descriptive. The founders use the term liberty. They use the term liberty. We need to learn what that gift is in its entirety, the full scope of it, and recognize that that's a gift we've each been given individually. We need to learn why constitutionally limited government is the cornerstone of freedom. Where did it begin? We, you know, I said constitutional, but what were they doing? They were putting in place a government to achieve the goals articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Dr. Martin Luther King had a name for the sentence of the Declaration that everybody in here knows. He called it our national creed, which I think is an outstanding name for it. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not the guarantee of happiness, the pursuit of happiness a point much lost on some in government who think their job is to deliver it to you. Not as well known as the next clause. <clears throat> of the Declaration of Independence it is for these purposes that governments are instituted among men. What purposes? To preserve the gifts that God gave us. That is the ceiling and the floor of the purposes of government. How far we have gone from that foundation. The founders recognized that the cornerstone was with God himself. We are a natural law country. We are founded in the truth God gave us and we recognize it as having come from him. And that recognition is critically important, and the founders said as much, to the survival of a republic. And I think our survival as a republic in the form we've known for some time is legitimately in doubt today. 
I don't mean tomorrow, I don't mean the next day, but I mean as the nation our founders envisioned over 200 years ago. And the principles on which this country was founded are timeless and universal. They apply as much in 2012 as they did in 1776, and not a bit less. And they apply to everything. That's what universal means. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not outdated, antiquated documents that our modern media would have us believe. I mean, both Time and Newsweek have run front-page articles, is the Constitution relevant anymore? I mean, that that would be a discussion is a sad commentary. 2006, in Virginia, we had the marriage amendment on the ballot. That we needed to have a marriage amendment is a sad commentary on where our society is. <clears throat> Many of those on the other side of the intellectual debate today say the Constitution isn't important any longer, that the Founding Fathers couldn't have understood what we would deal with in the 21st century. They couldn't have possibly understood that. But the Founders knew about tyranny. They knew what a government that wasn't accountable to the people was capable of doing to the people. They experienced the loss of their right to speak freely about the failings of their government. They experienced the loss to the right of trial by their peers. They experienced illegal searches of their homes with no basis other than government decreed that they would search that home. And that was by the military, not the police. Their property was taken by the crown, and they had no say in how much of their earnings were taken up for the king. The founders knew about tyranny, and they created the Constitution to limit government. It is the document that governs government. In that health care lawsuit, we are suing the federal government, states are suing the federal government to protect the U.S. Constitution from the federal government. And that's one of the roles of states, despite media apoplexy to the contrary. Read Federalist 45 to 51. Federal government oversteps its constitutional boundaries. It was expected and intended that the states would push back. And so we have. It's one thing I promised to do when I ran for attorney general. I just didn't expect so many opportunities to keep my promise. <laughs> but they knew the right foundation and where it came from. They articulated it better than had ever been articulated before, and they started with it right here in Virginia. It seems very appropriate that we have been on the forefront in defending these first principles. We have to engage in politics to zealously guard our freedom, our liberty, because at every turn someone, sometimes unintentionally, I would say usually unintentionally, in fact, often well-intentioned, but sometimes quite intentionally and not so well-intentioned, is working to take it away. One way of political engagement is simply to elect people who will follow the Constitution and the law. Sounds simple? 
But in my experience, again, bipartisan, many people who swear that oath of office are really just checking the box. If you quiz them on it five minutes later, they'd fail. They're not all that interested. Legislators who say, oh, it's not our job to determine if this is constitutional, that's for the courts. Really? Why don't you go back and read that oath you took? It's your job, too. You have a responsibility as well. You might not know it, looking at them sometimes. So you need to work for candidates who share your values of liberty, of life, of a more limited role for government in our lives, because that preserves the other two. And I would never have had the opportunity to become a state senator and then to become attorney general without the efforts of a lot of grassroots pro-life advocates working on my election campaigns, people supportive of the Constitution, lower taxes because they recognize that government must be kept small, a battle that goes on all the time. And more than supporting me with their votes, more than supporting me with their contributions, they supported me with their time and their personal investment of themselves in races and created grassroots armies. People will fight for principles. I don't ask them to come fight for Ken Cuccinelli in my races. I ask them to come fight for these principles. And I now have a 10-year track record. They don't have to take me at my word. In that first race, they took me at my word, which I can tell you is humbling beyond description. I was active politically for 10 years before I ever ran for office. In Virginia, we have elections every year. And so uh, whether it's a blessing or a curse, we have the opportunity every year to engage in these, and I did, every year for 10 years. And I never had any problem throwing myself into these races, but it was quite another matter to be a candidate asking people to throw themselves into these races. And it was a very humbling response that we received. And we have been outspent in all four of my races, three for the state senate and one for attorney general, and we have won all four. Because people who have values that you all have, have been willing to invest themselves in our races. And I never forget that. People in Richmond say, well, you know what? Why don't you compromise on this stuff? Because I know why I'm here. I also happen to be willing to lose. I like going home. And if the people of Virginia decide to send me home on a more permanent basis, I'll thank them and head on down the road and sit in my backyard and try and shoot coyotes more. But uh, that's another story. Those people have been critical to our races, absolutely critical, including some people from Christendom. <clears throat> uh, as a state senator, I won time and time again in a district where I can assure you the majority of people didn't always agree with my conservative point of view. I joke with folks that as a conservative in Fairfax, I was covered by the Endangered Species Act. Um, finally get something out of that. And I didn't win because I outspent my opponents, as I mentioned to you. Every campaign I've had, my opponents always outspent me, sometimes rather dramatically, two and a half to one in the worst case. We worked harder. We made phone calls. We knocked on doors, talking to people one at a time, 
to bring our message ultimately rooted in truth, but when you're at a door in a political campaign, you talk to that voter about what they care about, which means you listen, and then you talk, which admittedly is a challenge for me. She didn't laugh, that's the, uh, but, uh, although Allie did. Um, but you talk to voters about what they care about. But these universal, timeless principles apply across the board, across policies. And if you think through the challenges your constituents face as a state senator and attorney general, you can connect the two. You can connect the two. Um, I'm going to share one story with you running for state senate. The state senate district is about 200,000 people um, in our races about 40,000 will come out and vote. Low turnout races. In my first election, it was a special election in the middle of the summer, a scorching hot summer in 2002, and, um, and the, low, the turnout was 16.5%, which was higher than other people had expected. Um, it was a very short race, very short race, only a few weeks long. The guy who was in there, who I'd actually gotten in the race to run against, bailed out. He went into the Warner administration. And we didn't have much lead time, and we lacked funds. And there were two basic issues that year, taxes and life. So the Sunday before the election, we had people at every Catholic church in the district putting my flyers on cars and church parking lots. Why don't you fathers cover your ears? Yes, thank you. It's, I've already been to confession for it. So. Problem is, I wasn't sorry, so it didn't count. Um, uh, I was the first candidate in Northern Virginia to do this, but I knew those flyers were the only way to reach like-minded people. And I basically went to Baptist parking lots and Catholic parking lots. It was our proxy for a pro-life network in two weeks. Um, my wife, Tiro, got a call that Sunday from a woman who was so angry she could barely talk. The woman said to Tiro, I want you to know that I just left a holy mass and there was political literature on my car. I am so offended. So Tiro explained that we were fellow parishioners. This was our own church. That's always comfortable. <laughs> Pastor being one Father Fasano. Uh, that's a different phone call. And the woman said, well, separation of church and state and all that. Uh, okay. So Tiro began to explain to her that I was 100% pro-life, supported traditional marriage, lower taxes for families, and that I wanted to go to Richmond to help defend the sanctity of human life in the Virginia Senate. And flyering cars was the only way to reach serious Catholics who might not otherwise even know about the election, much less about me. The woman was still upset and said, well, I hope he wins, but I'm going to tell Father Fasano about this. I tell you this story because it's the attitude of many serious Catholics. It, and it's beyond Catholics. Christians, serious Christians have the same approach. We've been duped into thinking that our faith has no place in politics. The church hierarchy has been cowed into staying neutral for decades. Even on moral issues. They don't have to get into races, but they don't talk about critical moral issues 
in the face of elections for fear of losing their tax-exempt status, one of the worst laws we ever passed. Churches have only been tax-exempt since 1954. 150 years we seem to get along all right without tax-exempt status. I've met a frightening number of Catholics who believe the world of politics is something dirty and unholy, an activity only for the spiritual underclasses to participate in, while the righteous can stay home in order to maintain their holiness and remain clean. Well, I understand where the attitude comes from, but the other side isn't staying home. They are not staying home. Those people that I described to you are seeding the field without a fight. And what, one of the things I tell people frequently is that especially when we take on one of our many long-shot causes, some of which, after time, have come through, is we are not called to win. We are called to fight. We are not called to win. If there's anybody in here who knows God's plan, please raise your hand. No? Good. Um, I wasn't going to give anybody the chance to mess that question up. <laughs> we do the best we can to discern it, live our lives vigorously in accordance with that discernment, and from an elected official standpoint, we find out his plan on election night when they count the votes. Our job is not to win. It is to fight. We know how this story ends. Just a long way, maybe a short way from here to there. But we have a role to play, and God expects us to play it. He expects us to play it. Ronald Reagan has many great quotes, but one that seems so timely to me, I find myself referring to it all the time. I want to share it with you. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. And most people stop there. But I'm a pessimist, so I'm going to read you the rest. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. So, I strongly encourage all of you, and I'm not just talking to the students, to engage, whether in politics, which you can do today, in science, which will take you some preparation, or in the media, which is sort of in between the two. You can do some today, some more of it will take preparation or in some other field. Those are three institutions we talked about. But there are many other institutions. We didn't talk about education. 
higher education, K through 12. I've touched on our own church a bit, but there are many other institutions. Your community associations. One thing Alex de Tocqueville noted with being unique about America was we have associations for everything. We have associations of associations. <laughs> and he found that to be a tremendous strength, and it is. It's also lots of fields of opportunity for us, for Catholics called to be active in the world, for institutions founded on Catholicism in the world. Christendom is a place young people can learn the skills they need to engage and take their faith into the world, but you don't need to wait until you graduate. In my first re-election campaign in 2003, I had the interesting distinction of being the number one target of the Democrats in all 140 races running in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Again, I had been the summer before. In 2007, I dropped to number two out of 140. They got number one, they didn't get me. But in 2003, we had three top precinct captains. Two of them were too young to vote. One of them was a 15-year-old homeschooler who was worth about 100 votes in his precinct. And the other was a 17-year-old president of the Robinson High School Conservative Club kind of amazing that such a thing existed at Robinson High School in Fairfax. And as luck would have it, if you believe in such things, half of that club was on the track team. So they could lit drop a precinct <laughs> in world record time. So they'd come in at noon on a Saturday and my campaign manager was Meredith Quillen. She said, do you need more literature? No, we need another precinct. You're done already? Yes, we are. Those two couldn't vote, but they were worth hundreds of votes themselves. You all can vote. There's one. And you are worth an awful lot of votes if you're willing to engage. And that means door-to-door, -door, it means handing out literature, it means phone calls. And some of that sounds hard or uncomfortable, and some of it is, more for some people than others. Politics is not rocket science, it's perseverance. Hard work goes a long, long way. And the world is a place where people of faith and character are needed now more than ever to be leaders in their fields and examples for others. You don't label yourself an example, you're a witness. That's what a witness is. Everybody can be a witness. Leadership is always going to be necessary though, so we need both. So I want to urge all of you while you're still here at Christendom, and as you go out into the world, hopefully better prepared to deal with that world, be people of moral courage, continue to grow in your faith, and bring it into whatever field 
you enter into. And for myself, I can tell you my view of history right now in this country is that we are battling over liberty at a level that has never happened before. It is the fight of our time, even more so than life, because liberty and the preservation of it preserves life rather naturally. And the base of all of them is the same. It's truth. It's truth. Thank you all very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for feeding me. And uh, I'm happy to take some questions. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. All right. Now you're going to make me blush. All right, thank you. I'm happy to take some questions. And light's a little imperfect, so the farther back you are, the harder it is to see a hand. Who wants to start? Yes, sir. I should have known. And I'll repeat the question. The question was about the consequences either way of the outcome in the health care lawsuit. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about losing. It's simpler. The consequences of losing, it's hard to overstate them. Congress is going to be given a power to essentially decide by majority vote anything economic that in any way touches economics, even, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon touching economics. And once that's happened, uh, that liberty pie has shifted very, very dramatically. The Constitution now protects anyone who can get a majority vote in Congress. And if that's the new boundary for federal power, why have a Constitution? We can write that in one sentence. Whoever has the most votes wins. And in fact, when I've been debating some of these folks on the other side out in the public arena as opposed to in courtrooms, they will sometimes concede that if this mandate ordering you to buy health insurance, whether you want it or not, so against your will, if that's constitutional under the Commerce Clause, and that's what this case is, it's a Commerce Clause case, they are supposedly regulating interstate commerce by ordering you into it, which was Justice Kennedy's first question when the mandate was discussed. He asked the Solicitor General of the United States, can, you, can people be compelled into commerce so you can regulate them? Oh, well, that's not what we're doing here, Justice Kennedy. Really? What do these words here mean? Compel, buy the health insurance. It, the position to defending this mandate is one of denying reality, denying truth. And if we lose... 
If we lose, congressional power is enormous, and then literally it is whoever has the most votes wins on all things economic. And many of you would have at some point studied federalism, presumably all of you, and that's dead if we lose. It's over. Separate authority for states will be gone. If all I have to do as a congressman to make something constitutional is order you to buy it, that's easy. I can get to almost anything. I can get to almost anything that I, that I choose to. So that's losing. Winning is not as simple. It takes several forms. But the most critical element is that that mandate, that diktat, not be found constitutional. A hundred years from now, it's critically important that the government not be able to order you or your grandchildren to buy a product or a service or whatever they want you to buy simply because they have the power to order you to do it. That was my Equinox example, and like I said, that's what they'll make you buy. That'll have financial consequences, but the liberty consequences are enormous. States don't exist because we like states. They exist as a bulwark for your liberty. States are supposed to be in tension with the federal government. It's a permanent power struggle. Doesn't mean it's, we're going to have another civil war or anything of that nature. It just means there's always tension going on between the two levels of government. Because we're not, you know, you hear people say, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. No, we're not. We're a compound republic. We're two levels of republics. And they pull on one another. Again, Federalists 45 to 51. So 100 years from now, what matters in the big scheme of things is that that mandate not be held to be constitutional because we will have ceded so much liberty to Congress. And the court will have ceded a great deal of power in our constitutional system to the court because if, it's, if they have that expansive power under the Commerce Clause, there isn't as much to take to the court anymore because, frankly, it's hard to get to the boundary. It's so far out there. Um, now, they could take parts of it, the bill, and, and leave other parts. Those consequences are all, frankly, just financial. Um, could be devastating to states if they leave the Medicaid mandates in place. For a state like Virginia, that's about $2 billion in the next 10 years. I don't care how you count it. That's real money. And um, as someone who would like to be submitting budgets in the Commonwealth of Virginia in a couple of years, $200 million hole a year is an astounding size hole to try and fill. It's huge. So there are several levels of consequences. Some people don't look past the money and the dollars, but like I said, 100 years from now, what matters is that mandate and whether the federal government has the power to order us to buy products or to do whatever. Other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Tenth Amendment. The question is what I think of the Tenth Amendment. 28 words. Uh, and they, it wasn't openly identified in court, but a lot of people talk about the health care case as a Tenth Amendment case. And as I said, it's really about Commerce Clause. But they're sort of flip sides of the coin. If the federal government doesn't have the power 
than as consistent with the Tenth Amendment, the states and the people do. And the question is, do they have that power or not? Um, a true Tenth Amendment case is when the federal government passes a law and dictates to states, and I'll take an example, uh, the Brady Bill, where they ordered local sheriffs to do background checks. They cannot order our employees to do anything. And that was a violation of the Tenth Amendment. Tenth Amendment cases are actually fairly rare. It's usually some other power at issue. But the Tenth Amendment was put in place, uh, first of all, as a political compromise. It was James Madison knew he had to promise this to get enough votes in the Virginia Ratifying Convention to get the Constitution passed in Virginia, and it barely passed. The test vote was 88 to 80 in Virginia. You, you know, we take this thing for granted now, even if some people in this country trample it quite a bit. <clears throat> Four votes out of 168 swing the other way. No Constitution. Uh, we'd have a different country in one form or another. But Madison grudgingly promised this Bill of Rights after ratification, and he kept his word. And one that they argued about the most was the Tenth Amendment, because the notion was, and to them it was obvious, look, if we don't give the federal government a particular power, then they don't have it. And so the Tenth Amendment in the founding era was thought of as sort of belts and suspenders, but it certainly become a critical benchmark for us as we've moved farther and farther from the Founders' vision of how the Constitution would actually be implemented in the world, in the law, in politics. Um, so it, it has played an interesting role. And there were questions during the hearing last week. Justice Scalia kept coming back to the theme. Well, if this mandate is legal, is this still a government of limited and enumerated powers? How are you limited if you can just order everybody to buy something? And uh, to put it in founders' terms, you know, what would Patrick Henry think? Well, and he was pretty cranky at the time just about the Constitution. <laughs> he voted against it. James Monroe, future president, voted against it. George Mason voted against it because it didn't protect property rights, relevant this year, and other individual rights. They were absolutely against it, because they didn't have those guaranteed. And now we have them in a Bill of Rights, and our government, with the permission of our courts over time, has allowed them to be eaten away anyway. So I don't know how you juice up the Tenth Amendment, but certainly there are a lot of us that would like to do it. Um, but it plays a critical role, and it played an interesting role in history in just getting the Constitution passed. But it is at the center of the question, do we still have a government of limited and enumerated powers? Um, I don't think it's very limited, um, but they are enumerated. At least there's that. And that's what we were arguing about last week. So, Others? All the way in the back. Oh, I love that question. <laughs> um, I'm running for governor in 2013. And you know, that's, that's exactly the response I get at the Washington Post. Uh, well, maybe not so much. 
Um, and we have this awkward situation in the Virginia election cycle where the governor's races, the statewide races, attorney general as well, Mark Obenchain from here in the valley, um, have to get around during a presidential election and talk about the next year's election because you really can't just wait until that year. It's just not enough time. Virginia is big. Um, if you go out to Lee County, you're west of Detroit. Yeah, whoa is right. It's big. And um, it takes a long time. And everywhere you go, people say, gee, you haven't been here much. And they're all right because there are too many places to be. Um, so this year, we're, we're gathering support. We're not doing a ton of activities, but we're gathering support and we're fundraising. Um, and of course, we're supporting the ticket against, especially the president, this year in 2012, because Virginia is in a position it has never been in my lifetime. We are ground zero as a swing state for 2012. That has never happened before at the beginning of an election. Even in 2008, when President Obama won Virginia, that was not expected at the beginning of the race. If you go back to April of 2008, nobody expected Senator Barack Obama to win Virginia. And they weren't contesting it at that time. They did later. Well, this year, it's right from the get-go. Uh, obviously, I'm Republican. The Democrats have opened 17 offices around Virginia. It's been pretty quiet, but they're working the ground now, and we're trying to work the ground on the other side. But we don't have as, much, we don't have as many resources. We don't have as much engagement, especially without a nominee. Uh, it's a little tougher, but um, that'll come in time. But we're still gathering people in. We have our own email newsletter, uh, which I reported on every night of the healthcare uh, case, the arguments last week. And you can go to cuccinelli.com and sign up there. We would like it very much. If you would go, just let us know you're willing to be supportive, willing to be helpful. There will be some things here and there to do, but not a lot this year. But when we get past the exhaustion of the 2012 presidential election cycle. And in Virginia, we're gonna have a Senate race as well and some hotly contested congressional races as well. Um, the, people will be exhausted, but there's no, no rest for the weary in Virginia politics because we do this every year. And I have a nomination contest. I'm not, I'm, it's not my turn in line to run for governor. Uh, I'm running against the person whose turn it is in line. Um, I think people, I think voters are pretty well fed up being told who they get to vote for. I figure if they don't want me to be their nominee, they'll make that happen. So um, I would appreciate if you all go to Cuccinelli.com. It's easy to find if you can spell Cuccinelli. And, uh, and just sign up for our newsletter and let us know that you're willing to help and be supportive. And over time, we'll gradually rope you in more, especially after we get past this presidential election. So thank you for asking. Um, there won't be any bumper stickers till after the presidential election, though. So, yes, sir. Um, question was about potential dangers of the states having too much power. Uh, yes, let's look at Virginia. Um, I mentioned that. The state lawsuits, state's lawsuits, there are three. The one heard last week was Florida's against the federal government to protect the U.S. Constitution from the health care bill. 
That is federalism in action. That's us pushing back on the federal government because they're violating the Constitution. Go back 50, 60 years in Virginia, and it was the state government of Virginia that was using the law of Virginia to deny the constitutional rights of its black citizens, 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment rights. And it was the federal government that pushed back, eventually, on that oppression. And so it does go both ways. I do think that, that was how far, that's how far back you have to go to see the kind of federalism conflict that we're seeing in the health care bill. Obviously a totally different issue um, and in many ways much more severe. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it does go both ways. So that, that problem does exist, though I would suggest that states have been uh, and have given up so much of their unique authority um, and had it reduced largely based on federal budgeting. You know these programs we all call mandates, Medicaid. Medicaid is not a mandate. It is a bribe. It is a legal bribe by the federal government of the state governments. If you want this huge pot of money, you have to set up your Medicaid system this way, in 10,000 rules. Virginia could back out tomorrow, but we'd lose about three or four billion dollars in money that's used to provide health care or attempted to provide health care for the poor. And it is reaching the point where in some states we're beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Because the restrictions are so severe, the, the arrangement is so bad. Um, but the answer clearly is, and we have unfortunate historical examples right here in Virginia, states can do this too. States can do this too. Others? Yes, ma'am. You're not all that enthusiastic about? This year really will be the most important election you ever see. You can sit it out or you can get in it. And this is more your world than it is mine, um, just as a matter of years. And if you look back to the last election that was ha happening at what I would call a transformational period in our history, it was 1980. Of course, we know the history of Ronald Reagan winning, which was no foregone conclusion. It didn't happen until late in the race. But if he had lost, the economy was in bad shape and so forth. But the downside of him losing was nothing like the downside of losing this year. 
and I hate to speak in the negative, I deal with the downside every day as Attorney General. And um, what we'll see, you know, the open mic comment, hey, wait till after the election, I'll have a lot more flexibility. How many other world leaders has he told that not over an open mic? And how many domestic policies, if you pay really close attention as I need to, to their regulatory decisions, they've delayed things past election day. I have no questions about how any of those decisions are going to go. Now one they delayed after election day along the same lines that they thought would buy them some time, they, I actually think they messed up, was the HHS mandate. As Cardinal Dolan said, oh, how generous, they've given us a year to figure out how to violate our conscience. Um, but what they also did, certainly unintentionally, is that year will run into January of 2013. And there is an easy way, well, a simple way, to get out from underneath that mandate, and that's get a new president. Um, Frankly, there are an awful lot of reasons. You can pick an issue you care about and just look at how it's playing out with this president and, this, and the congressional stalemate and look at how it would play out otherwise with the Republican nominee as president. And the difference is enormous. It is enormous. And there are times Ronald Reagan offered us an opportunity really the last really good opportunity aspirationally to get behind a candidate who was from the beginning had a decent shot of winning the nomination, a decent shot of winning despite the media saying all the things I'm used to hearing, oh, this guy can never win. And, um, and we haven't seen that really since then, none of the Bushes. Um, Ron Paul is very good in three distinct areas the Fed, civil liberties, uh, which is wrapped up with the Constitution. Um, and there's no question who would cut the most earnestly. It's Ron Paul. And uh, I appreciate all three of those. And if, if you want to see an example of courage, moral courage, on what might otherwise be an utterly boring issue, look at the Fed and Ron Paul. He has been a lonely voice in the political wilderness for years and years and years and he has been right and he has been right and he has been ridiculed and ridiculed and now today here in April my first of two predictions for the presidential race has come true every Republican has adopted his minimalizing the Fed position and my second prediction for you all is a much tougher one, is that the president will before election day. Patrick Henry lost the vote on the Constitution and it got us the Bill of Rights. That's how we got the Bill of Rights. James Madison was dragged kicking and screaming to the Bill of Rights. He was vehement in the Virginia Convention. We don't need it, this is ridiculous, it's duplication. If we didn't give it to the federal government, they don't have it. Thus, they can't do any of these other things. True to his word, 
He made a political deal in the Virginia Convention, and he stuck to it. And Patrick Henry got that concession while losing. And Ron Paul, I think, I mean, I, I would call him a, a friend. I don't spend a lot of time with him, but I respect him. And, and um, I think he knew from the outset his prospects, but he has changed the debate. We are not called to win. We're called to fight. You don't fight. You fail in your calling. Doesn't mean it's the best. We don't always have the best. But I know what we're facing, and in my lifetime, it's the worst. And uh, it does not bode well for this country, and therefore the world. We play a unique role in the world. So there is an enormous amount at stake. So please don't sit it out. Please don't sit it out. I'll take one more and then, then wrap it up if I can see one more. There you go. Oh, you're, you're the, you're help, wow, that's very generous. A helping questioner. Yes, sir, over here. In my judgment, what? Is Rick Santorum a big government politician? Um, on the financial side, the answer is yes. And Rick Santorum is my favorite human being in this race. Rick Santorum did a fundraiser for me before anybody else would touch me. Father Fasano made him. Um, <laughs> ask either of them. They'll both tell you it's true. And, um, and uh, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for Senator Santorum, an enormous amount of respect. Um, but when the Republicans, and he isn't alone in this, and he is, you know, he said things like his Medicare Part D vote were a bad vote, other things of that nature. But when he was in the Senate, in leadership in particular, so 01 to 07, he voted for it all. He voted for it all. He's not the only one. George Allen voted for it all. Voted for it all. And if you step back to 08, take this current presidency off the table, the George Bush presidency was an outrageous period of growing government. Outrageous period of growing government. And he was not alone in not standing in the way of that. What sets him apart is on issues that are the most uncomfortable, he was willing to stand alone. Nobody fought harder for good judges. When you think about changing hearts and minds on life, he did it. It's easy enough to talk about it. He did it. And he stood by it and stood up for it. He articulates the basis for a federal marriage amendment better than anybody I've ever seen. And I've kind of gone back and forth with him a little bit, thinking, you know, marriage has always been something, the province of the states. And it has. And he'll talk, to, he'll take you down to the foundation and say, this is more basic than government. And he's right. He is awesome on some issues that no one else in the field is. Um, and if you want a good person as president, you can't do any better than Rick Santorum. You couldn't do any better. Um, but your question was about big government, and he was right there with him. He was right there with him. I'll say this on that point to his credit. 
He is the only candidate I know of on all three entitlements who actually has a track record in spite of his Medicare Part D. He was also for block granting it to the states. He stood up for private accounts for Social Security, and that was never cool politically. Um, and he was the floor leader on welfare reform. Now, he was doing it because I believe his motive was families, a good motive, because welfare is destroying families. Um, but, it had, but it's a fiscal issue, and those are the three big entitlements. You want to you balance a budget? You can ignore everything else if you deal with those three entitlements. And he's shown a willingness to do that, and he's the only one who has. So in the current field, my answer to your question is yes, but I think he's probably still better than the others, at least in terms of his track record. So, and then we'll see what we get in Congress. Thank you all very much. Dr. O'Donnell, you want to back? <laughs>